You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Sleep apnea. We know it makes for tired patients and angry spouses, but in our patients with other disorders, are we overlooking this important treatable cause? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and I'm delighted to welcome in today Dr. Nancy Collip, Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorders Center at John Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore. Welcome, Dr. Collip. Thank you very much. Why don't we start by talking about sleep apnea in general? How, how frequent do we see this in the general population? Well, there's some recent data that would suggest it may be as common as 15 to 20% of adults aged 30 to 69, and it may be as high as 50% in, in obese patients. So it's, it's quite common, especially in view of the fact that the United States tends to be getting more and more overweight. And how is that defined? Does, it, does the frequency depend on the definition of the disorder? Yes, indeed does. The syndrome itself includes both findings from sleep study as well as symptomatology like excessive daytime sleepiness. So it does somewhat depend on how you define the syndrome if you just use the sleep study results versus if you use the symptoms a patient has as well. So it may be, if you just use sleep study results, it may actually be even higher. But if people don't have symptoms, we tend not to to treat unless it's quite severe. Where should we be looking for these patients? That's a, a large number. Who in our offices should we be suspecting of this disorder? It's certainly typically associated with overweight and obese patients. However, I think it's a it would be a not right to just look to just look at that population. I think you have to look at people who are not overweight as well nowadays. It's certainly more common in men than it is in women. However, once women go through menopause, the prevalence almost equals that of males. And the other population beside the obese or overweight population are people that might have a small upper airway for whatever reason, say, for instance, people that uh, have Down syndrome or other congenital abnormalities that narrow the airway, people that have small or recessed jaws, In children, certainly, it's much more common in children that have large tonsils. So anything that might narrow the airway should be on the alert for. And so we want to be on the lookout for the overweight patients. And then postmenopausal women, you mentioned the frequency goes up. Is, Is it understood why that is the case? Well, like many other disorders, it seems that hormones protect women from things like cardiovascular disease, and they also appear to protect women from developing sleep apnea. It may be because of its control, the control they exert on the control of breathing or the patency of the upper airway because of muscular control. But for whatever reason, it seems that once the hormones go away, that the likelihood of developing sleep apnea goes up. I know I've had at least one patient that I really did not suspect that he seemed to have an open throat and but was diagnosed by sleep study is having upper airway resistance syndrome. Is this the same as sleep apnea or a variant? It probably is a variant. What we, I mean, this term was coined uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, and what it represented at the time was people that on kind of routine sleep studies did not show Uh, did not meet the criteria for having sleep apnea, but clearly had all the symptoms and looked like they should have sleep apnea. But then 
when they went back and kind of reanalyzed their studies with more invasive monitoring, they saw that they were having mild narrowings of the upper airway, but those narrowings of the upper airway, rather than causing oxygen desaturations, were causing uh, them to wake up or have arousals from their sleep. So it's probably, I mean, you could say it's a more mild form of sleep apnea, more mild in that the sleep study wouldn't look as bad, but maybe not more mild in terms of the symptomatology that they have. So they tend to have the same symptoms. And so you really have to listen to the history to have a high index of suspicion in these patients. Absolutely. Any other risk factors that uh, we haven't touched on that should alert us to being on the lookout for sleep apnea? Well, I think we'll talk about some of the things that have been associated with sleep apnea, such as hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, and risk for stroke and, and even diabetes. And so patients with any of those conditions, the likelihood of them having sleep apnea is quite high. Some of them, there is more information about cause or effect versus just association, but it seems that in those patient populations, they are at higher risk for having sleep apnea, and oftentimes treating the sleep apnea some kind of can it, sometimes can improve that comorbidity as well. So I think in you know general adult medical populations, those are other uh, area or other patient populations that you might want to take a close look at. How should we make the diagnosis? Uh, do the patients know they they have this? Will they give us any symptoms? Well, that's one of the I guess problems with uh, with sleep apnea. Like I tell patients, you know, they don't realize that they have a sleep problem. They typically have complaints uh, while they're awake that they may not then extrapolate back to being a sleep problem. So kind of the most common symptoms would be, you know, having unrefreshing sleep, so waking up and feeling like you haven't slept or being exceedingly tired and sleepy during the day. Some patients will have more complaints of insomnia, so they awaken frequently at night, have difficulty maintaining their sleep. So those are kind of the, the common symptoms. What most often brings the patient to medical attention, though, is the bed partner. So the bed partner's observing, you know, loud snoring, watching the patient struggle to breathe, they're holding what they often call, term it's holding their breath at night. So it's often the bed partner that picks up on the apneas at night, and, and that's what alerts the patient that, that there may be a nocturnal problem. Other symptoms that, you know, again, the patient may or may not associate with a sleep disorder or having a sleep disorder would be things like nocturia. So they'll wake up and have to go to the bathroom several times during the night. And often, you know, men will attribute that to prostate problems, for instance. Waking up with a headache is another one that's, that's, uh, that's often seen in patients with sleep apnea. And then symptoms of reflux that particularly occur at night and awaken the patient. So those are all other things that might alert somebody that they have that they may have a sleep disorder like sleep apnea that, you know, may not make the connection that it's sleep apnea, but, you know, that, that the symptoms are associated with sleep. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Nancy Collip, Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorder Center, about sleep apnea. Dr. Collip, on physical exam, besides that narrowed airway, are there any other clues that we should be looking for? When I, you know, examine a patient that I'm concerned might have sleep apnea beyond the, the narrowed airway and particularly, you know, looking at the size of the jaw and the position of the jaw, you know, people that have retrognathia or micrognathia would be at risk. 
Other things that I look for are nasal obstruction or turbinate hypertrophy, septal deviation, whatever is going to narrow the upper airway, you know, above the larynx is going to put them at risk to have upper airway obstruction at night. Other things would include, it's been associated with a large neck size, so um, in uh, men and neck size over 18, 17 or 18, and in women 16, 17, you know, it's associated with thyroid problems as well, so you always want to do a a decent thyroid exam uh, and maybe check TSH. One other interesting thing it's been associated with that I always look for as well is lower extremity edema for reasons that we really don't understand, but this was picked up in prior studies that sometimes patients with sleep apnea seem to have unexplained peripheral edema that often improves with treatment. So that's another thing that you might look for on physical exam. And and when we do then have this suspicion, I guess the classic test is the in-lab sleep study. Is that the best to start with or... How about overnight oximetry or other simpler tests? Are they useful? Right. So kind of the way to confirm the diagnosis that's current standard of care would be an in-lab polysomnography or sleep study. Other tests that screen such as overnight oximetry or even home-based multi-channel monitoring, so oximetry plus maybe an airflow or an effort channel or some of these other things that are out there, are certainly useful tools uh, in the right hands. For example, if you look at just overnight oximetry, the problem with overnight oximetry is some patients may or may not have significant oxygen desaturations associated with their sleep apnea. So they can still have a lot of sleep disruption, but may or may not actually drop their oxygen level to a significant degree, particularly if they're otherwise pretty healthy and start at that high point on the oxyhemoglobin <laughs> saturation curve. You know, it, it takes a long time to get your oxygen saturation down. So overnight oximetry, if it's positive, it helps you in kind of the classic sawtooth pattern. But if it's negative, it doesn't really exclude the diagnosis. I would say the same. Once you start adding more channels to the home studies, you improve your, your specificity. But these techniques then take you know a little bit more time to, to review and analyze. Um, and like I say, they, they really need to be done in the right hands of somebody that knows what they're doing. So for now, uh, you know, we typically still are using in-lab polysomnography to make that diagnosis. Then when we uh, send the patient for that, can you tell us how we should interpret the reports? So what happens during a sleep study is a multitude of channels, physiologic channels, are monitored. We monitor brain waves. We monitor EMG of the chin and the leg muscles. We monitor eye movements. We monitor oxygen saturation, EKG respiratory effort. Those are kind of the typical leads that are monitored. Then we'll go through the study. You know, typically they're seven or eight hours long, and every 30 seconds we'll analyze the study for the different sleep stage, uh, whether there's disordered breathing events or any other abnormalities, EKG, et cetera, abnormalities that might occur. The study that's then generated, or the report, I should say, that's then generated will take typically all the disordered breathing events Apneas would be where the airway is completely obstructed. Hypopneas would be where the airway is partly obstructed but causes a physiologic response like a drop in the oxygen level or arousal from sleep. All those are kind of collated, and then we generate this 
apnea, hypopnea index, it's often called, or respiratory disturbance index. There's a number of different names for it. But the bottom line is that number is kind of all those disordered breathing events divided by the amount of time and hours the person's asleep. And we, in general, use that information to kind of grade the severity of the apnea. Although, in looking at the test, you don't want to just look at that. You want to look at, you know, the oxygen desaturation. You want to look to make sure the patient reached all the different levels of sleep, you know, how much sleep disruption they have. So so there's more in the report than just kind of focusing on that apnea hypopnea index. But that is a good general kind of index of the severity of the apnea. I want to thank Dr. Nancy Collip, Medical Director of the Johns Hopkins Sleep Disorder Center, who's been our guest as we've been discussing the diagnosis of sleep apnea. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.